Welcome to another episode of the Silk and Steel podcast. I'm your host, Carl Zha. Today, I'm very excited to welcome back uh, a returning guest, a Taiwanese communist rapper, Comrade Xiangyu. Or how do you want to be addressed, uh, Mr. Xiangyu? You can call me Xiangyu. Yeah, it's cool. Okay. Well, welcome back. Glad to be back. Uh, for some of you who are longtime listeners, you are already familiar with him. We last time we uh, I brought you to the show, we talk about uh, mostly your family history, uh, you know, your background growing up, how you became a communist, and your very interesting family history uh, tying back to the Korean War. So a lot of I got a lot of response uh, feedback. Uh, many people say they actually learn a lot just from us talking about, you know, the, the recent Asian history. And I thought, well, with your background as Taiwanese, we should start a show talking about Taiwan's political history. Because there's so much misconception floating around um, and so many myths. I'm pretty sure you want to dispel them as well. Uh, yeah, and I understand there are a lot of different views regarding things like, um, you know, reunification or um, independence. But my goal is to at least give people the context so then they can better understand, like, everyone's views, regardless of whether they're correct or not, you know. Well, you know, the beauty of uh, American politics and Internet is that, you know, people can spew off giving very strong opinionated views without knowing anything so it's our goal today hopefully to educate um and and uh, just bring some historical context uh to taiwan because for most people the only if the only only news they have is from western mainstream media all they know is about oh the the taiwan uh, Chinese mainland tensions. Uh, we're gonna bring all the way back well, from the beginning of the time, from the, the the prehistorical Taiwan down to the present. I think that will really flesh out the political development of the island. Um, should we begin? Yeah, and I think we're gonna also, as we bring up certain historical events, we might do a little bit of film suggestions just as you said um yesterday when we were talking you know humans are visual animals so it'll help people better put things into context i feel yes yes definitely definitely so let's talk about um the early taiwan history now would you like to start or would you like me to start you off um Gee, I don't. I really don't know how to start this one. Let me start off. Okay, so, uh, you know, like there's actually so little, you know, people know about the the, the prehistorical Taiwan. I, I feel like we really need to uh, uh, do its justice on my show. Um, so Taiwan existed, you know, way way before the mainland Taiwan divide, obviously, mm-hmm. and it has long been settled. Uh, by humans since prehistorical times. In fact, uh, one of the, uh, you know, based on, ling- based on linguistic evidence, uh, you know, people believe the Austronesian expansion started out from Taiwan. And by Austronesian, I mean the language fa- family of Austronesian language family, which covers 
from um, Taiwan all the way down to Madagascar on the African coast, uh, down to New Zealand and Hawaii. Uh, these are like the the four. I mean, the the, the Madagascar, New Zealand, and Hawaii are kind of like the furthest Australasian expansions. And what the lang linguists discover is that you know, like pollination language, actually, you know, pretty. Uh, it's pretty uniform. I, I mean, it's, it's the way the language developed is that you know, given enough time different dialects start to appear then then language start to diverge as you know isolation builds in and then different languages branches out right what uh, but what they what did they discover while the Austronesian expansion that seems to be quite recent brought a whole uh, you know range of people and culture spread throughout Pacific and Indian Ocean uh, they found the most diverse, uh, Australian language group is actually on the island of Taiwan. So the the model of uh, of dispersion is you know the the, the, the di most diverse place is probably a pl a closer to the place of origin. Think of uh, you know the American expansion the, the, and the, say the Russian expansion, right? They it's very recent phenomena in, in the last couple hundred years. And so that's why you have this whole continental wide piece of North America that's all speaking English, American English, right? And you also have this huge expanse of land stretching from Moscow to Vladivostok on the northern Eurasian continent that's Russian speaking. This is a sign. I'm sorry? You mean Haisen Y? Okay, okay. So, yes. Yeah, Haisen Wai is a Chinese name for Vladivostok. Before Vladivostok become Vladivostok, which means the Lord over the East. And and so this, that, the, the reason the whole of Russia, right, speaks Russian and whole of United States speak English is because it's a sign of very recent expansion. And same thing with uh, you know the, the Austronesian language expansion is that uh, you know they discover the most diverse uh, place of is actually Taiwan. It contains many many uh, of these Austronesian family. So we know that Taiwan has been settled a long long time. Uh, but that doesn't um, again. This is just based on linguistic evidence. But, you know, Taiwan actually had been settled way, obviously, way before the Austronesian expansion. Uh, in fact, uh, I'm, I'm reading your notes here um, that the earliest inhabitants of Taiwan are, are as early as over 10,000 years ago. Yeah. And I'm assuming that they will be arriving from the Chinese mainland. Yeah. Because... Because, oh, oh, yeah, here, here you go. You've you seen your notes, actually. <laughs> there used to be a land bridge between Taiwan and the Asian continent. And actually, in China, in southern China, uh, particularly the area around the Yang lower Yangtze Delta, that's an area where rice cultivation was de developed uh, about 9,000 years ago. Right, and then the rice farmers, because rice is super productive, then rice farmers start to push out of the lower Yangtze Delta, spread all across. And we know, you know, the Austronesian people, 
you know, both the Taiwan Aborigines and people in, say, Indonesia and the Philippines, they're, they're rice farmers, right? So, so the, the initial rice farmers, they, they brought their agriculture, uh, rice agriculture throughout, you know, Southeast Asia. Uh, you know, some, some of them pushed as far as Hawaii, New Zealand, and Mad- Madagascar. Uh, uh, so this, this is like the history of the prehistorical Taiwan, the 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 the, 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 the time that before Taiwan even appear on written records, because we don't have uh, written records from times of ten thousand, nine thousand years ago. All we have are archaeological evidence. But we, then Taiwan, then start to appear in the Chinese records as uh, you know China as one of the first place in the world that have very complete record keeping um, and this was dated to uh, the three kingdoms period uh, you know like many of you gamers would know uh, you know dynasty warriors <laughs> or the, the total war three kingdoms that just came out last year so so the, in the very important three kingdoms period uh, that's when Taiwan possibly Taiwan appear in the Chinese records. Uh, I mean, we say possibly Taiwan because um, what appeared in the Chinese record is, is that the, the ruler of Kingdom of Wu, Sun Quan, he sent um, basically expedition to um, to a large island, uh, right? To to large island, uh, which they believe now many historians believe that island is referring to taiwan um but it was not a it was not a permanent settlement because it's more of a like slave raiding mission because during three kingdoms period uh, there was a large the, the, the han, han dynasty at its height at its peak had 65 million people, but as a result of plague and civil war during Three Kingdoms period, you know, the Kingdom of Wu, which covered much of southern China, they have less than uh, like five, four million people. And so, so, so Sun Quan really needed people to staff his, his kingdom, and, and he would send out these expeditions to round up people to bring back. And one of the expedition went to like a, a large island to uh, to southeast. So people believe um, people, many historians today believe that this is referring to the island of Taiwan. Again, they didn't, you know, they didn't come to Taiwan to settle. They they were more interested to bring people back. Um, and then 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 this, uh, the second record of the the Chinese contact with Taiwan was during much later during uh, after the unification in the Sui dynasty. Uh, uh, but there's some c- controversy about that because the, the island was referred to as Liuqiu, right? So the emperor, uh, emperor Yang of Sui sent, sent uh, actually, I like how you describe it. Why don't you cover this part since this is your, your notes right here? Okay, yeah. So um, basically, he sent his boys to Taiwan to capture a few hundred prisoners of war um, back, to, back to China. And um, from this, we can see that there was the intention to incorporate, um, incorporate Taiwan into the imperial map. But there wasn't the intention of you know, establish, establishing actual rule over the island. So the Sui troops basically did a drive-by shooting on Taiwan and left. 
Yeah, and again, there's uh, still a little bit controversy, uh, mostly among historians, on whether the Liuqiu is referring to Taiwan or the actual uh, Liuqiu Neutron uh, Island, which is Ryukyu Islands, or what most Americans would know as Okinawa. Because, uh, you know, in, in, in China, the Liuqiu Island, or aka the Japanese pronunciation is Ryukyu, um, the, the Okinawa island chain has had long historical contact with, uh, uh, with the Chinese mainland. And um, even though Taiwan is a lot closer to the mainland, but because of the curious uh, effect of the ocean current and the wind, because, you know, monsoon wind is very important in Asian tr trade and it kind of blows uh, like like uh, either northeast or southeast direction. So it's a lot easier to ride the ocean current and the wind from, say, f coast of southeast China, say, from Fujian or, or Zhejiang to, to Okinawa, to Ryukyu Islands and then Taiwan, right? And, and the fact that the, 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 they refer to the island as Liuqiu, which was actually the name of, you know, ancient Okinawa. Different characters, um, though. Yeah, but come on, the, 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 that that's a transcription, right? Yeah, Liuqiu yeah. is it's not a, a Chinese name, so it's it's mm -hmm. a it's a transcription of a native name, Liuqiu. Yeah. So so much with Taiwan actually too. Yes, yes, we we will talk about that when yeah. we talk about the Taiwan's modern history. Um, so so there are some people who, based on ocean current, believe that they actually ended up in in Okinawa rather than Taiwan. Um, and but by by Song Dynasty, we we Taiwan is definitely on the map because by no, Song no, Dynasty only um only Peng only Penghu Penghu yeah that's what I mean because the Song Dynasty have is there, there's a set of islands right in the middle of Taiwan Strait halfway between the Chinese mainland and Taiwan called the Penghu Islands. So the Song Dynasty and the uh, following. Uh, after Mongol conquest, the Yuan Dynasty have established administrative units on Penghu Island. So there's settlement, the, you know, of Chinese fishermen on Penghu Island. So they're already halfway to Taiwan, but they're not quite to Taiwan yet. They're, they're, but they start to be aware of that large island on the other side of the the, the Taiwan Strait. This is a very important detail, um, because we're gonna get into um the um the. Dutch East Indies Company and the other, um, you know, the European colonists. And this is a very important detail. Just keep that in mind. There were people on these islands in the middle of the Taiwan Strait. And there's yes. also the Dutch East Indies com Company in Indonesia. So Yes. Yes. So we're still at the Mongol conquest. So I'm yeah, just going yeah. to go through the notes. So the Yuan Dynasty navigator Wang Dayuan went to Taiwan and noted that people were plentiful and lived long. Men and women both wore cotton, cotton clothing. That might be a translation error, um, because bu yi, it's like uh, English. It would sound weird just saying like cotton clothes, like or cloth clothes, but it mm -hmm. was like clothes made of fabric. So I, I, I don't, I didn't know how to translate that. Yeah, I mean that he might be cotton because you know Taiwan. Yeah, was part of this maritime trade network that spans Southeast Asia, and we know during colonial times. 
you know, the Indian cotton was actually highly valued in place in Southeast Asia, including Taiwan, because, you know, like the, 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 the kind of the cotton fabric kind of absorb, help absorb sweat, you know, in, in the hot mm-hmm. climate that, that, that's so, so I, I mean, it might, it might be cotton. I mean, it's t- certainly possible because the, the trade, the Indian ocean basin trade network that, that kind of spanned the South South China Sea. Uh, I mean, that has existed for a thousands of years, for a thousand years at least, oh. and and that would definitely cover the Mongol time uh, that we're talking about. And and the the Wang Dayuan also noted there were tens of thousands of goats, uh, and they grew flax and mung beans. So so these. The people in Taiwan, they're agriculturists. The, the Aboriginal people in Taiwan, they were, you know, the, the, the cultures are, they grew, they grew rice, they grew uh, different crops, right? And then, um, again, as we mentioned before, both Song and Yuan Dynasty, they established an administrative uh, unit over Penghu Islands, but there's no attempt to extend their rule over Taiwan yet. You know, Taiwan still kind of kind of beyond the pale of imperial reach. Um, this will start to change a little bit during the Ming Dynasty. Um, so mean so this this is interesting because getting back to the name. Right, because because uh, during Ming Dynasty, Ryukyu Islands, or really we should use a, the, the native Ryukyu uh, language, the, the Liuquan Islands, right? In Chinese, they're called uh, in or in Ming Dynasty texts, they're called Da Liuqiu Guo, which is a greater uh, Ryukyu Kingdom or the greater Liuqiu Kingdom. Whereas the Taiwan is referred as to the Xiao Liu Chou Guo, um, kind of counterintuitive because Taiwan is much much bigger <laughs> in land mass than Okinawa. Maybe not uh, popularity. That might be why one is big and one is small. Like you know. That's true. That's true because yeah. uh, like, during Ming Dynasty, Wayne, but he's bigger than me. Yes, yes, because uh, because during Ming Dynasty. Um, Ryukyu Islands, uh, you know, center in Okinawa, they finally come uh, to be united under one unified kingdom. And the, the Ryukyu Kingdom, uh, you know, they they send envoys to the Ming Imperial Court asked to be tributary of China uh, because that allows Ryukyu Kingdom to be part of the Chinese tributary system, which means Ryukyu Kingdom can send ships to trade freely on Chinese mainland as a, as a main tributary. And, and because of that, Ryukyu Kingdom became a, a trade hub in the marine time uh, trade networks of Southeast Asia, because it's kind of set in halfway between uh, Japan, Korea, China, and Southeast Asia. Right, and it's just a little bit north of Taiwan. So Taiwan is part of that network also, but Ryukyu Kingdom was was a more important trade hub. Mm-hmm. And but but Ming Dynasty is also the time when uh, oh, you also in your notes it says that Taiwan was considered to be fifteen um, to fifteen countries that that not to be conquered. Right, so so bu, that that's your translation of Bu uh, Right, so yeah. so the Ming Dynasty founding Emperor Zhu Yuanzang, 
he kind after he unified he after he uh, throughout the Mongol rule, he established um, these tributary states surrounding the imperial China. They are consider you know the 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 good tributary states so you know china will not in turn china will not invade or occupy them so so among this is uh the real q kingdom but taiwan uh interestingly was considered a kingdom and always considered one of these lands that that will not to be conquered and and so again it kind of implies that Taiwan was kind of beyond, just beyond the imperial pale. And, and but, um, oh, oh, actually, you have more in your notes. It says, uh, Zhu Yuanzhang basically said, Taiwan was a lawless land that posed no threat to China, and therefore there's no need to conquer it, which is true, which is true, because uh, at the time for uh, people on the mainland, Taiwan is more uh, a place for like sailors and fishermen to stop by and getting resupplies uh, and for some trade with the mainland going on, you know, because Taiwan at the time, um, you know, the political development of Taiwan uh, come even compared to Okinawa, it did not have, uh, it has some tribal confederate confederacies, but it didn't even have like kind of the more complex uh, organization like like Oki, Ryokyung Kingdom on Okinawa, and um, that's that might be also why it's called Xiao Liu Chou right? The little the little kingdom of Liu Chou. Um, yeah. And an- another thing I want to mention is um, notice how he said that um, Taiwan uh, Taiwan posed posed no threat to China, therefore there was no need to go conquer it. That's the thing about um Chinese territorial expansion, which is why it's mostly by land, and it's not like um the European um colonists who went all over the world is um as long as a place a place was only considered people they only expanded to places where that posed a threat for example um like with tibet it was it's not simply the case of um just chinese going in and um conquering it and making it a part of china but the fact that there were so many interactions over a long period of time and a mutual like mutual cases of um invasions so I mean, with, yeah, that is a, it's a very interesting case, and I will have a devote devote some future episode into mm-hmm. it because originally Tibet existed; uh, it has its own empire. You know, Tibetan Empire was the rival and the equal of the Tang Empire, yeah, and and, and the, from the treaty it signed between Tang and Tibet, it's clear that they were they were co-equals, and then that started to change after the collapse of the Tibetan Empire. After, especially after the Mongols basically came in and, and, and conquered everything. And the, the Tibetan religious authorities, the Tibetan lamas went to the, the, the Mongol Khan and basically submitted. Mm-hmm. So that's when, for the first time, Tibet was kind of brought into one administrative unit, um, you know, by a government that's based in China. Okay, yeah, I just covered but this and, is an and, important and, detail because Taiwan, they didn't consider um, really incorporating Taiwan until it became evident that because of Taiwan's um, importance in trade, it would eventually either be conquered by the Europeans or by the Japanese. And those people would pose a threat to China. Well, I think uh, so. Taiwan is kind of just... 
Because Ming Dynasty, for most of its part, it has its hands full, and especially mm-hmm. towards the end, the end of Ming Dynasty, there's a there's a really very serious problem of Japanese piracy uh, that was stem in fact uh, a fact from the the fact that the, the Japan at the time was was a lawless uh, was entering into a very chaotic this so called the Japanese Warring States period. So there was left no no central authority in Japan, and and the different factions, you know, they try to maximize their game however they can, including engaging in international piracy, <laughs> and and the, the the Japanese piracy became a huge problem for Ming Dynasty because the, the entire because uh, Ming Dynasty has been in peace for hundreds of years and there's no coastal defense, and suddenly all these. Uh, Ronins, which are basically masterless samurai, became employed by these, uh, you know, pirates. Uh, some of them Chinese pirates, actually. And they then they, kill. yes, yes, they start attacking the Chinese coast up and down from, you know, any from, from Beijing all the way down to Hainan Islands, and and the, the Japanese piracy actually affected the whole coast of, uh, uh, of not just China but also Southeast Asia and and you know the main response to that was stopping the trade with Japan uh, you know because Japan was really never part of official tributary uh, system and the fact that the, the Japanese pirates were causing so many problems so the main officials just outright banned the trade with Japan but that creates actually a more incentive for piracy because you know the, the trade with japan was actually a very crucial source of income for a lot of the coastal merchants uh you know especially merchants from fujian uh <laughs> and and uh, so a lot of the, uh, the 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 coastal merchants actually took to piracy themselves and they, they will hire the the, the ronin, so those masterless uh, Japanese samurais, you know, who are very good at swords, they're basically literally swords for hire. And 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 by the late Ming Dynasty, it was estimated that the so-called Japanese pirates actually it's seventy percent Chinese. <laughs> and and in fact, the 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 the, the, the biggest um, so-called Woko or the the, the biggest Japanese pirate, the head of the Japanese pirate organization is a Fujian merchant. Uh, he, he's a Fujian or Zhejiang, that, that same, that area, Wangzi, uh, you know, and, and, and these people will play this. Uh, the reason I start talking about the pirates uh, is because, yeah, pirates are fun, but to be, they will actually play a huge role in the political development of Taiwan itself. And and one of the uh, and just during this time, these pirates, this uh, Chinese uh, Chinese slash Japanese pirates, will make Taiwan their base uh, because Taiwan is kind of outside, just outside the imperial reach, yet close enough to to be used as a platform for trade and piracy on mainland China. And and these uh, you know, so there's the 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 the, the Chinese pi- merchant pirates families. From Fujian, Zhejiang, etc., they also had close tie with, you know, the Japanese da- daimyos, basically these Japanese warlords 
who also depending on the trade because at the time you know Chinese economy was growing so large and so vast um, and, and China being the first one of the first country in the world to print paper money and the government just start print, printing paper money like crazy and it caused hyperinflation and eventually the currency crashed and the whole economy went back to metal currency which in China was bimetal, was silver and gold but China, while produce is a major gold-producing country, it does not produce enough silver. And it's also around this time, you know, the, about 15th, uh, 16th century, a silver mine was discovered in Japan. So that created a huge incentive to, to trade because there's a hu huge need for silver in China itself to use as currency. And then there's, you know, the, the Japan needed to trade for tea, silk, uh, porcelain, all the all the luxury goods is a desire from China. So there was an active trade of in Japanese silver for Chinese uh, manufactured goods, and it's carried because of the ban, uh, because of the imperial ban on trade with Japan. Uh, you know, one to to skirt around the ban. You know, that's one reason Okinawa uh, or Kingdom of Ryukyu become a trade hub because Kingdom of Ryukyu is a, a Chinese vassal. So it's allowed to trade with China. <laughs> it, was, it also can trade with Japan because, you know, one of the Japanese daimyo, they they conquered, they took the opportunity to conquer Okinawa, uh, Ryokyo Kingdom, but they, they made sure to disguise the fact from the Chinese imperial envoy. So the trade with Japan can go on through the kingdom of Ryokyo. And in the other part, just south of Okinawa is Taiwan, which around this time became a big pirate base. And one of the famous pirate at the time was called the Captain China. <laughs> he was known to the Europeans as Captain China. I think his last surname is Lee. And he filled a huge fleet of junks that kind of dominated the, the waters in the Taiwan Strait. And then he was succeeded by one of his protege, Zheng Zilong. Um, and Zheng Zilong, you know, is one of the typical, kind of the typical um, Fujianese people who, who took to, to the sea for profit. And he landed in Japan, you know, married a Japanese woman, um, have, a, have a song by her, have a couple of songs by her. And you know, one of one of the song, one, his oldest song uh, by this Japanese woman will play a pivotal role in the Taiwan's history going forward. So, uh, just trying to wrap up this real quick, even though this is fascinating, but we really get need to get to a more modern period. So, Zheng uh, Zilong, because he was the head of the, basically he inherited this huge. Uh, pirate empire off the coast of southeast china and the Ming dynasty eventually decided you know screw it we can't beat you but we'll just pay you off we actually will recruit you into our court as one of our court officials and then we give basically give you a license to hunt down other pirates which suited him just fine which just means he gained a trade monopoly so Zheng Zilong, then he took um this is the Ming Dynasty yeah. version of reform and opening up. <laughs> yeah. Well, kind of, sort of. Uh, he uh, so Zheng Zilong, you know, got now he got the imperial 
uh, license uh, uh, to be like the the official pirate, basically. And then he he defeated his rivals, gained a trade monopoly. He became super powerful. He had a um, uh, he's a very complex character because he he well traveled. You know, he he in his youth he traveled to Macau, then uh, a Portuguese Portuguese colony because you know Europeans are starting to show up around uh, the Ming Dynasty. Late Ming Dynasty. That's when the span, the, the so-called Age of Great Discovery, right? The the, the Portuguese finally rounded the uh, the Cape of Good Good Hope in Africa, and they made it into the Indian Ocean and and starting to dominate the trade in the Indian Ocean Basin. And then the Spanish, you know, they quote unquote discover Americas, and they also discover huge silver mines in Bolivia, Peru. Chile, Mexico, and silver, as I mentioned, was hugely valuable in China. So the so the Spanish moving to Manila, uh, establish a base there, and use the American silver to trade for for Chinese goods with these uh, Chinese merchants slash pirates, and and then the Dutch moved in. Right, the Dutch follow suit. They defeated the Portuguese. They, they were able to grab. Uh, the the so-called Dutch Dutch East Indies, which is today's present-day Indonesia, they established their base on Java Island uh, in what they call Batavia, which would become Jakarta today. And and so now you, we have all these Europeans crawling around in the Asian Asian waters, and the Portuguese they um, they tried to uh, you know basically stormed their way into China. They, they fought a couple of Navy battles against uh, the Ming Dynasty Navy. And they were actually being defeated. And there were in the twi- two naval battles, the Portuguese were defeated. And so in the end, they resort to kind of corruption. <laughs> they, they bribed the local officials, uh, essentially, to allow them to stay in Macau. It's supposed to be a lease, uh, uh, like they, they for paying a certain amount of uh, rent annually, they get to set up shop on Macau. And, and Macau became kind of a center of trade for the, for the European traders that wanted to trade with China, especially engage the triangle trade between China and Japan, because as I mentioned before, the, Jap- the, the trade, direct trade with Japan was completely banned by Ming Dynasty imperial government, but the Portuguese they're they're able to trade in China from their foothold in Macau, and they're also got a um, foothold in Japan. They're allowed to trade in Japan. So, so in the end, you know, rather than bringing goods from Europe to China or Chinese goods to Europe, the 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 trade that sustained the Portuguese in Asia was actually acting as middleman between China and Japan because only Portuguese, uh, you know, they, they use their middleman status and the, the trade volume between China and Japan was so huge that, you know, the, the most profitable trade for the Europeans at the time was a kind of triangle trade between, between China, Japan, that's, that's been kind of brokeraged by, by the Portuguese. And then the Dutch, they wanted the in on the, on the, on the same, uh, you know, very, very profitable, profitable trade from their, their um, base in Jakarta. You know, they, 
they kind of on the periphery of the Chinese empire, but they're not allowed direct access. So, so this is where Taiwan is going to play a huge important role because Taiwan is kind of this island that's just kind of outside of the imperial reach, uh, but yet just close enough to the to the Chinese mainland that could potentially acting as a, a springboard into China itself. And then, uh, you know, the Dutch actually had a couple run-in with Zhen Zilong because Zhen Zilong, as the admiral slash pirates uh, commissioned by Ming Imperial Corps, he had a trade monopoly, right? He, he is not about to let Dutch to elbow in into his business empire. And... And then the Dutch um, actually, uh, so, so Zhen Zilong is interesting because he, uh, he, in his youth, he spent in Macau in the, the Portuguese colony where he, he learned some Portuguese. He is able to communicate with these, with these uh, Europeans. And he, apparently he also was baptized. He has a Christian name. And, and also from Macau, he gathered around himself uh, a, 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 a of personal bodyguards of former African slaves, um, because these these black Africans they have no local loyalties, they have no local ties, so they they own owe their allegiance only to himself. So these are the people he feel he could trust, and so his close bodyguards are these like these uh, these uh, uh, Catholic Africans. And and then you know he has a Japanese wife. He has he is operating base out of out of Japan and also out of Taiwan. But by the time um, the the Europe Dutch start showing up, he already uh, most of his operation already moved back to Chinese mainland because he has gained the uh, kind of the favor of the imperial court. And then then him and Dutch uh, was gonna have a showdown because. Um, Dutch start to show up, um, basically try to pillage, uh, raid and pillage the, the, the coastal Chinese towns. And the, the Min court commissioned Zhen Zilong to repel the Dutch. So he started to build this uh, uh, a European-style warships on the coast of China in Fujian. Because, uh, you know, at the time, Europeans had couple advantages, military advantages over the Chinese um, and other East Asian people. That's that what allowed them to construct this far-flung empire is their uh, fortress, their, their fortress built, they, they, they have very good firearms because, uh, you know, after gunpowder was passed into Europe, for hundreds of years, you know, Europe was in constant state of war. And so the Europeans got pretty good at, at, at fighting, at war fighting. So they got pretty good firearms. They also have um, uh, they also have very good sailing ships um, because just for the for the fact of geography um, in in East Asia, the very important for the trade is a monsoon, and the monsoon wind blows you know one direction half of the year and then reverse direction the second half of the year. So most of the A Asian ships were built to carry on this monsoon trade. Whereas uh, in in North Atlantic, the weather is a lot rougher 
and you know the win is a lot more unpredictable. So people like the Dutch, um, Portuguese, they had to build like really sturdy ships that could sail against the wind. So the Europeans had better sailing technology because their their, their ships are bigger, more uh, they, their ship hold more guns and their ships could sail their their rig their special rigs allowed them to sail against the wind and that's what the, the the chinese and other asian people were about to find out is when they engage the europeans navies militarily on the high seas you know they have problems because even when they managed to defeat the Europeans, they couldn't catch them because the, the, the Europeans could just sail against the wind and get away. Whereas the, the Asian ships, there are their sail is designed to maximize against maximize to, to maximize to catch the wind, right? Catch the trade wind to, to go to the next port. But so, but they're not very good going against the wind. And and uh, and the third military advantage the Europeans have is the Italian style Renaissance fortress. Um, so so the Europeans learned to build this uh, uh, this Renaissance fortress that have they have this bastion sticking out so that way there's no dead spots on the wall on the city wall. You know they can shoot basically at all different angles. And that allowed them to construct a series of forts in different like spots of Asia. So if you look at Portuguese Empire or Dutch Empire, initially they only they're just literally outposts, you know, like center around a fortress. And and because these fortresses are so well built, and because they have no no dead spots, uh, you know, from crossfire, like it's very hard to take them. So these fortresses plus their sailing ships allow them to construct this far-flung empire all across Africa and Asia. And this will also play a role in Taiwan. So, so this brings us to Zheng uh, Zilong building. So he's trying to replicate the European success by building the European sailing ship. And apparently he did a very good job because when the Dutch came to, came to pay him a visit, they, were, they marveled at the... The, the, the workmanship that, uh, you know, they said, that, you know, the ship he built, you know, match anything that was built in, in Netherlands. But Zhen Zilong didn't get to launch these ships because, you know, the Dutch launched a surprise attack just when his ship was about to be finished. And, and Dutch were able to burn all his ships right on the beach. And, you know, Zhen Zilong had to resort to um, kind of a, a traditional Chinese um, Navy Navy battle uh, tech tactic, which is he waited for the Dutch uh, ship to uh, cast um, uh, to 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 set in in a harbor, and then at night he sent fire ships, you know, small ships loaded with explosives and gunpowders, and used the wind to send this fire ship into the into the Dutch fleet. And he blocked the, 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 the entrance of the harbor so they couldn't escape. So this was a major defeat for the Dutch and revenge for, for his own losses. And, and because of this, you know, Dutch pretty much gave up on, um, on Dutch pretty much gave up trying to set up an outpost on the Chinese mainland. And also they, this, uh, this, you know, Dutch, 
also try to colonize Penhu Islands, which is what we talk about. This set group of islands is halfway between Taiwan and uh, Chinese mainland. You know, but Penhu Islands is actually part of the imperial territory because it's it's part officially part of the the Ming County. So Zheng Zilong, by his great victory against Dutch, basically kicked the Dutch out of the southeastern Chinese coast. Um, at this point, they enter into a peace negotiation. You know, because they they you know they still want to both sides still want to carry on business trade. So Zheng Zilong says, you know, as long as you clear cut off the Chinese coast, including Penghu Islands, because those are my responsibilities, I have to answer to the Ming Imperial Court. Uh, guess what? There's this big island across the water, you know, and and that that's where I used to, you know, <laughs> I use use as a base for my my old days piracy activities. You can't have that. Uh, so, so at that, Dutch took that as like an official endorsement of them uh, to take over Taiwan, and then this begins uh, um, kind of the, the 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 Dutch colonization of Taiwan. And then around the same time, the Spanish try to expand their trade network from Manila because from Manila they have to depend on the Chinese pirates slash merchants to bring the Chinese goods to Manila to trade for silver. They wanted to get closer to the action. So they also pushed to Taiwan. The Spanish established a series of forts in the northern part of Taiwan, around um, area around Taipei today, kind of just around Taipei. Whereas the Dutch, they set up base in southern Taiwan, uh, around Tainan, uh, and and they built the, the, the couple fortress over there. And then the Dutch and the Spanish, they, they of course, they have a, had a showdown over Taiwan. Uh, and Dutch being the rising power, European power that gave the Spanish a sound beating. And, and then Dutch became kind of the undisputed colonial power over Taiwan. And, and originally, uh, you know, when Dutch came to Taiwan, it, the there are already people there, of course, you know, like so original people, originally people who have been living there for tens of thousands of years. And they're about also about 2000, according to the Dutch records, Dutch East Indy Company records, there are about 2000 Chinese traders slash merchants who are kind of also have their like sacred pirate bases at various uh, points of the island that's also on the island and also trading with the natives and and uh yeah and that's how the dutch colonial period began i think um, we're gonna try to move along quick so we can get to the modern time but basically um do you want to talk about how the ming how the ming empire fell and at and um Zheng Zilong was um a ming loyalist so this is a very important point and it's kind of it kind of reflects the situation on Taiwan today a little bit. Yes, yeah, he has some similarities with um, the Zheng family had some similarities with the uh, with Chiang Kai Shek's family. Yes, 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 and also that that's actually been used politically by Chiang Kai Shek himself. Um, so, yeah, because uh, you know we we're talking this this whole period we describe with a European arriving on the scene with a trade in silver from Japan and America has happened during the late Ming, right? And the, the late Ming was 
as you can see, it's interesting times. You have officials that can be bribing to allow Portuguese to set up shop in, in Macau. You have, you know, basically kind of the pirates turned uh, Navy Admiral Zhen Zilong had some kind of his own personal private dealing with the Dutch, right? And and so so under the scenes, the, the empire was, you know, was not as strong as he appeared to be. And... And the final blow came uh, when there was, uh, you know, there was a mini ice age event also around this time. And what, what it, it, you know, in, in today's parlance, you know, global climate change, <laughs> and and there was, the, the temperature dropped drastically uh, in the northern hemisphere. And and what happened is it, how it manifested in northern China, it, it, you know, drought, you know, frost. Crops getting killed, uh, resulting in famine, and and the Ming is a vast empire. You know, it actually has a lot of um, you know rich, uh, fertile regions in south in the south, especially in Lower Yangtze Delta, where there's plenty of rice surplus to feed the the north. You know, via the Grand Canal, but you know the new the emerging kind of bourgeois in the South, um, you know, the, the pri- former landowners kind of like t- turning proto-capitalist, uh, you know, at the time, they are very opposed to increase the taxes on, on, on them, on their holdings to in able to, in order to fund basically the going on to the empire. So what happened was, uh, Northern China fell into chaos um, uh, at the time when there was a, the semi-nomadic people, the Manchus, start to rise in Manchuria. They defeated the Ming army in Manchuria, basically kicked kick Ming army out of Manchuria, they established their own kingdom, and became a major military threat because uh, they would, uh, they on several occasions, across the Great Wall and raided as deep as Shandong province, um, which is, you know, pretty, pretty far south, way past Beijing. And at the same time, you know, because Ming dynasty was spending all this blood and treasure while trying to hold off Manchus, the drought in northern China caused a, a peasant rebellion, basically just starving Famine refugees. They 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 started to storm government granaries and and then move from place to place. You know, just trying to find food, and and general collapse of social order in northern China, and and that uh, was left to fester. Eventually, a peasant rebel Li Zicheng led his army. Um, you know, bolstered by the, the famine refugees from Henan to Shanxi, and then. He uh, did a long expedition from, 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 he established his capital in present day Xi'an, and then he did a long expedition from Xi'an uh, through Sanxi. Like he went um, to pi- bypass them because Ming Dai, he destroyed major Ming army in, in, in northern China already. The rest of the Ming army are, are kind of holding off the Manchus at the Great Wall. And he went. A uh, little bit into like detour around through Inner Mongolia and loop around, went back on the Great Wall 
um, hit through the Great Wall around Beijing, and he took the the imperial capital Beijing. You know that's official fall of Ming Dynasty. Um, and then, but then in turn, himself was defeated by the Manchus at the Great Wall, and the, the Manchu cavalrys came in and start wiping up northern China. Meanwhile, the the, the southern uh, the, the the remaining Ming uh, government trying to set up a, a, a court in southern China, in Nanjing. And at this time, people like Zhen Zilong suddenly became a lot more important because he has at his command a huge navy, uh, a naval power. And, and he became, basically became uh, promoted very high into the, into the southern Ming government. But, but he... At the end of the day, he's a businessman, and he, he weighs his self-interest. Uh, when the Manchu army finally came, he, he did a quick calculation and decided to capitulate, to surrender his army uh, uh, holdings, and including uh, like the imperial household as hostage, to the, Man- to the new Manchu conquerors. But he has an opponent within his own family, and that's his son, Zhen, uh, Zhen Gong, as he's mostly well known, or or Guo Xinye, um, and Guo, Guo Xinye is uh, uh, get corrupted, get corrupted into yeah by Western by 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 the Dutch and the Portuguese as uh, Koshinga and and Zhen Chenggong was uh, you know he returned from Japan. Uh, he was born in Japan to a, to a Japanese mar- mother, but he was brought back to China when he was eight years old. And he was being educated, basically brought up in this Confucian uh, uh, teaching that, you know, like honor, loyalty. And, and he thought what his dad did was totally traitorous. And, and he decided uh, going against his dad um, like there was an episode, he actually famously went to the after he heard the the surrender of his dad to the Manchus, he went to the Confucian temple and he burned his um, Confucian robes, right? And he down his armor and and now the Zen Zen they are their powers resides in their in their pirate slash merchant family networks, right? And Zhen Chenggong ha- apparently, with his uh, with support of a couple of his uncles, um, you know, quickly took command of the actual Zhen family holdings and their 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 their, their, their military. While while his father was being, you know, went to Beijing as a hostage, so Zhen Chenggong took over as the new head of the Zhen family enterprise, uh, kind of, almost like a private army. Uh, because at this time the Ming Dynasty exists only on paper. Sounds familiar. And and then yes, and then Chen Gong wanted to you know his le- claim to legitimacy, of course, is that he's a Ming lo- loyalist. He's he's aimed to restore the Ming Dynasty from the you know the barbaric Manchu invaders. And at one point he almost succeeded because. Um, you know when the, the when when the Manchus uh, they had they had relatively little trouble trouble mopping up northern China because northern China is so ravaged by war and rebellion 
And when they defeated the main peasant rebel Li Zicheng, they they had a kind of free reign. But they they come to meet more stiff resistance in southern China, and and when um, Zheng Zheng Gong took advantage of a temporary uh, setback in the Manchu army, the, he sailed his ships all the way from Fu today's you know Fujian. Uh, basically, his base is is just across the, uh, the water from the Taiwan Strait. His his the the main base of Zheng family was. Uh, uh, the area of uh, uh, Amoy uh, and Jinmen, Xiamen and Jinmen. Uh, Xiamen in English is rendered sometimes of uh, as Amoy, and Jinmen is rendered as Kinmen. Amoy, Xiamen is um Emun and um Hokkien, and um Jinmen. Well, it's because the older, older um Chinese spoken like the J sound today and today's Mandarin was kind of like more like a G sound, so. It's it still it still exists in like some southern Chinese yes. dialects, I guess. So that's where the inconsistencies come from. Yes. So uh, Xiamen or Amoy, uh, Jinmen, there are two islands just um, off the coast of Fujian, but it was already a major trading hub around this time, especially because the Zen family holding had this far flung trade network all throughout East, East Southeast Asia, as far as you know, Indonesia and Malaysia uh, and Thailand and and from there he uh, able to recruit a, a huge navy he sailed up the Chinese coast enter the Yangtze River uh, the, the mouth of Yangtze River and took it all the way down to Nanjing and he, he put Nanjing the southern capital under siege so so Nanjing has already at the time chance changed hands to to the Manchus but now he's back he was uh, at head of army about to take back Nanjing, right? At this kind of like almost historic history-making moment, uh, he was brought down by hubris because, uh, you know, he thought he had the city in the bag and he got lured into complacency by a false surrender of the Manchu garrison. And they actually took the opportunity to get reinforcement and uh, to, to build up the walls. And then finally, when his supplies ran low, they... Manchus, the Jin, the Qin army, because it's really not Manchus anymore. Because at this point, Qin army actually is probably majority Han Chinese. You know, the the, the actual Manchu cavalry, even though the, it forms the elite fighting force, but the most of the Qin army at the time were um, former former Min army that was now defected to Qin, and now now they fought on for the the new. Qin Dynasty in, in, in based in Beijing. So anyway, the Qin army overwhelmed uh, Zheng Chenggong's army, forced him back to his his base in um, in Xiamen and uh, and and Jinmen. At this time, he had to reevaluate his options, right? And and his uh, his this was a major setback. His his dream of restoring uh, you know his rule over much of southern China just got shattered. And and the the the, the Jin the, the the Qin army you know the Manchu court is sending huge amount of troops down to south to keep on taking over cities. So he had to think about uh, a plan B, and the plan B happened to lay across the water, across the water of Taiwan Strait in then the Dutch colony of Taiwan. Um, 
And and then maybe per, perhaps at this time we should just briefly talk about the actual Dutch colonial rule of Taiwan, because um, you know the, when the Dutch first arrived in Taiwan, they um, you know just like how they set up in other parts of Asia, they first built a fort. Uh, they built a fort near a harbor. Uh, they built Fort Zeelandia uh, right on. Uh, you know, in southern tip of Taiwan, uh, near Thai, uh, present day Tainan. It's in Tainan, but it's um Anping district today. Yes, yes. Um, it's in the Chinese uh, name of the fortress is called Anpingbao, but the Dutch name is for Zelandia, and they uh because it's it's right sitting right on the harbor, so it can be supplied by by the sea, and like I say, it's built uh in the italian style renaissance fort um, it has different bastions that that protrude from the fortress wall that it provides crossing fire so there's no blind spot in on approaching it's very hard to take and from there they start to subjugate the taiwan uh aboriginal tribes in the taina in the southern taiwan area and in fact one of the first one of the most powerful confederation at the time, it's called um, is it Taoyuan or Taiwan? Um, basically, that's how the name Taiwan came from. Uh, and, um, it was closer to um Taiwan, which is why it was also written as um Da Yuan, like into in Mandarin, because it's also pronounced Taiwan, like Taiwan and Da Yuan, and all those characters in Hokkien are all pronounced Taiwan. Ah, yes, yeah, yes. So, so the, the, at the time, the the biggest indigenous confederation in the area is called Taiwan and and the then the, the the that eventually became the name for the whole island which is Taiwan but it's it's Taiwan in standard Mandarin but in in Hokkien which is uh, the uh, well more specifically Minnan right the, the southern Min language family language um, that's spoken by the the immigrants from 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 um, from migrants from from across the strait from the from the mainland Chinese province of Fujian. Um, so the the at this time, so when the Dutch arrived in Taiwan at first, um, the first is they militarily subjugated the Aboriginal people, forced them to uh, sign treaty, acknowledge uh, you know sovereignty of of Netherlands, uh, allowed the Netherlands to set up trade at the time. Um, Taiwan was populated by a, a huge flock of deer, and it there was a very big profitable trade in deer skin. Um, you know, to to be sent to Japan to 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 mainland China, and but but that under the Dutch because you know the, the Dutch they try to maximize their profit. They encouraged the hunting of the deer to the point of near extinction. And so they had to find extra source of income. And what they realized was, you know, they came to Taiwan to exploit the natural resources. But in turn, they find out the most profitable um, trade in Taiwan was actually exploiting the Chinese settlers. So they start to bring in Chinese settlers on massive scale. They start to encourage uh, um, a Chinese migration across the Taiwan Strait. It's this also at the time when 
the Ming Dynasty is falling apart, right? There's huge scale civil war and invasion going on. So there's a lot more people willing to to get out of Fujian, and and uh, Dutch encouraged this trend, uh, encouraged them to set up farms in Taiwan and then tax them. And in fact, the taxation on the Chinese settlers became the main revenue for the Dutch colonial government on Taiwan. And, and, and at the time, Taiwan is it's one of its most profitable colony in Asia. You know, it's either on the par or surpass its um, income from uh, Batavia, which is in Jakarta in, 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 in Indonesia today. And, and so, so Taiwan became very valuable to Dutch. Um, but again, there is not without its problems because while the Dutch are perfectly willing to profit of the Chinese migrant labor, uh, the, the exploitation was ruthless, right? The Dutch, they, they didn't rule the Chinese um, directly. You know, they used middlemen, the Chinese middlemen who often, you know, exploit, you know, take a huge cut and then, you know the 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 the, the lower ranking middle lower ranking Dutch uh, military officers also you know through cr- their own corruption extorts these uh, Chinese local Chinese merchants and local Chinese labor, and to the point where um, there were several Chinese uprisings on Taiwan, and and again you know the Dutch they never had a huge force in Taiwan at at most they'll have about like 2,000 people on their arms. But um, one of the largest uh, uprising by the Chinese uh, migrant labor on Taiwan involved 5,000, uh, you know, mostly male, of course, uh, Chinese laborers who, who took up arms and they surrounded the, the, the Dutch fortress of, of uh, uh, Zealandia. And the problem is that you know as i mentioned before dutch fortress they're they're building the renaissance uh, italian style had no blind spot so without huge firepower the chinese the, the chinese rebels they couldn't take the fortress and from the fortress the dutch sailed forth um and and you know another advantage they have which the chinese uh, pe- peasant rebels didn't have is Dutch has better firearms. So after several valleys, the, the Chinese rebel broke and wrong, and then the Dutch would hire the indigenous headhunters tribes to hunt down these uh, Chinese laborers. And even, literal headhunters. Yeah, literal headhunters. <laughs> and, and so there was a huge, several huge massacres uh, on the Chinese. And this didn't just happen in Taiwan. This also happened in Batavia, which is modern day Jakarta. You know, the almost similar thing happened. You know, Dutch started importing a lot of Chinese labor into Indonesia. You know, um, basically, you know, they grew, the Dutch uh, colonial administration grew fat from taxing these, these, uh, these Chinese migrants. But then again, they are, they're, they are scared of their numbers, you know, their increasing numbers. So, so they are conduct these occasional massacres to keep them in, in place. This not only happened in Dutch uh, colonies, but also in the Spanish colony in Philippines, in Manila. You know, Manila used to be like a very heavily uh, uh, Chinese populated place. Um, and and this because you know Spanish the same thing they're fearful because that the Europeans are few in numbers they're they're afraid of being 
kind of uh, overshadowed and 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 and. And, and by taken over by the Chinese. So, so again, some wild rumors of impending Chinese invasion would spark a Manila massacre. And this happened across the European colonies in Southeast Asia. But with the difference with Taiwan is that Taiwan is a bit closer to the Chinese mainland. And um, after the result of one of this, uh, this Chinese massacre on Taiwan, uh, a Chinese... Uh, like uh, uh, this guy is kind of a comparator who is basically a middleman between the Dutch and the, the, the Chinese traders. He had his own personal dealing with Dutch, but he was, uh, you know, grown dissatisfied with the Dutch because the Dutch keep on cheating him of money and also because, you know, the, 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 the massacres. So he escaped uh, by ship to the Chinese mainland. He went to the court of who at the time is facing a dilemma of what to do, you know, you know, how to feed his his large force because Zheng Chenggong still had had, you know, 20, 30,000 uh, man navy at the time. And the, the Qin dynasty that newly established in Beijing enforced um, uh, basically a blockade against him because he they know Zen family depend on foreign trade and the over, especially the sea trade. So what the, the Qin dynasty did is they order all the families to be uprooted. And it's like 15 li, uh, so 15, one Chinese li is about what, half a kilometer. So 15 li is what, like a, a six, seven kilometers. So all the, all the settlements within seven kilometers from any coast or to be relocated in land, um, their goal was basically to starve out Zheng Chenggong's force and, and and cut off any supplies and support he get from the indigenous population. And it was the plan was starting to work because Zheng Chenggong with his naval force sitting, you know, 30,000 people mouth to feed, sitting in Sha, islands of Xiamen and Aomen, were getting. Uh, you mean you mean Jinmen? Not Almond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, sorry. Almond's kind of far. Yeah, but I'm thinking Amoy. I'm thinking Amoy, so I say Almond. Yeah. Yeah, Shaman and uh, Shaman and, and Jinmen. So it will be Amoy and Kimmen. And he is getting a little worried. Uh, and now, at this opportune moment, this person from a messenger from Taiwan arrived and told him, you know, Taiwan is ripe for the taking. And he said, you know, that the, basically the Chinese are ready to, to rise up to greet him as liberator. And and the Dutch are cruel, and but they're few in numbers. At this, uh, and he also told Zheng uh, Chenggong that Taiwan is an extra, fr- basically painted Taiwan as this land land of milk and honey, ripe for the taking. And and then 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 Zheng Chenggong send a letter to the Dutch, say, hey, look, you know, um, Taiwan is my is the land of the mean. Uh, especially because that was a land of my father. You know, my father <laughs> used to have holdings on Taiwan, uh, and and now, uh, you know, we allow you to settle there temporarily. But now, I, I we, we need it, so it's mine. Yeah, we we need to take it back. I, I need to take it back. So so Dutch is trying to argue. No, no, no. <laughs> you know, your father has this document signed that basically allow us to take uh, uh to 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 take Taiwan. Like Jensen goes like no, no. No, I'm gonna take it back, and and so so Zheng Chenggong at this point sailed with, uh, I believe it was twenty five thousand troops, 
a huge force um, sail across the Taiwan Strait into into uh, Taiwan. And the 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 Dutch they actually set up um, the Fort Zelandia at very very strategic place because their harbor can only be approached uh, normally through um, the harbor right underneath basically the fire from the fortress, right? But because there's a lot of defectors, there's a lot of Chinese from, from Taiwan that defected to uh, Zhen Chenggong's camp. They told him he, he can just wave during high tide to go through um, uh, Luermen, which is a little bit north, just 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 a, a north of just just north of the fortress. There's, a, there's another lagoon that um, would be able to uh, sail his ship straight in during high tide, and and while while outside the range of the cannons from the Dutch Dutch fortress. So he did that, set up camp, and and the you know the dutch send out a force to like 250 people uh of musketeers to to meet him in the field uh because in the dutch experience that um that was enough because dur- during the last rebellion where they defeated the the uh 5000 chinese peasant rebels you know the dutch only had like 150 musketeers they fired several volleys and the the, the chinese peasant rebels broke and ran so they thought that's all they need to do. Just just show their show, show their force, fire a couple volleys, and you know the Zheng Gong's force will be done for. But but what they did not realize, you know, Zheng Gong's force is a battle hardened veteran force, and they um, they actually snuck uh, while the Dutch uh, expedition was sent out. The two hundred fifty man musketeer was sent out to to repel Zheng Chenggong's force, Zheng Chenggong had another force landed just be- behind them, between the, the 250 uh, Dutch musketeer and the Dutch fortress, cut them off on their escape. And then, you know, from both sides, the, the, the Dutch, the, the, the Zheng Chenggong's army launched attack. And then when the Dutch fired their first couple initial volleys, when they realized that the Zheng Chenggong's force did not broke but keep on advancing, they themselves panic and start running, and then they they all got you know basically massacred. And, and then, this marks the first military defeat of Westerners by Chinese people on such a scale. Yes, and then um, you know at, at the time you know because one of the reason why the the Dutch didn't think of very highly is because uh, you know. The, the, at the time, the, a lot of the Zheng Chenggong's army, they're still wielding like swords and 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 uh, you know halberds and 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 dressing armor in like metal armor, like things that has already gone out of fashion in Europe because of the proliferation of firearms. So they thought, okay, you know, this is like medieval army; they could just completely you know wipe out. But but the, you know they what they didn't expect is a discipline of Zheng Chenggong's troops that they could advance under fire, and then after that defeat, the uh, the Dutch withdrew to their fortress. Uh, you know they still have about two thousand men, but um, you know that's when Zheng Chenggong would find out the uh, the power of the. Uh, the the European Renaissance fortress. He couldn't storm it. Uh, like he's trying to set up uh, batteries, um, like artillery outside the wall. But the the 
the the the, art, the artillery from the from the uh, fortress could you know easily destroy them from from the top because you know the they they haven't had a experience to besiege a European style fortress yet they, they didn't know they need to build you know like um, protection for their own artillery stuff and 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 this siege will last a long time because you know Zheng would not be able to find a way to take the fortress by force so he chose to starve them out but this is became a problem because unlike <laughs> unlike the picture painted by uh by the the uh the, the merchant who defected to to his side who said Taiwan is a land of milk and honey. At the time, Taiwan is has very little cultiv cultivated land, and by bringing such a large force, twenty five thousand people to Taiwan, Zheng Chengong's force faced famine because their supplies were dwindling, and and there was not enough food in Taiwan. So they actually had to send out troops to surrounding indigenous. Uh, uh, villages to request for food for food requisition and and this there's there's also time that the Dutch almost almost turned back the tide of the war because Sun Tzu Kong chose a time to to besiege the Dutch fortress at the time when the when the trade wind was blowing and was blowing uh you know from southeast to northeast. Right, so they didn't think with a strong trade wind the Dutch would be able to have a ship to sail against the wind to Batavia, to which is Jakarta in Indonesia, to inform the the Dutch HQ of the tidings. But Dutch ships, you know, as I mentioned before, they have different riggings. They can sail against the wind. So one Dutch ship escaped. They sailed all the way to uh, Indonesia. Brought back reinforcement, uh, uh, reinforcement a thousand men and a fleet of warships. They suddenly showed up in Taiwan and brought fresh supplies for the fortress, and this came a, a huge shock to Zheng um, Chengong. One of the reason is a uh, Dutch ship was built very sturdy, and you know at the time. Uh, you know the the Zheng Chengong's navy, the, the traditional Chinese war junks, are no match to these Dutch ships on the high seas. And you know they 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 it's, the Dutch ships are almost uh, undefeatable on the high seas. And then um, just at this time, you know Dutch make a very strategic error. They try to use the naval force to relieve the siege by sailing into the harbor. And the tide dropped. The, the 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 Dutch ship got stranded. They got completely surrounded, and the the Sun Chengong sending the fire ships, just like his father, completely wiped out the Dutch fleet. Um, and and then you know that was the last hope of of the Dutch relieving force. And also at the time, the, the the Dutch fortress itself, the supply was running out, and then scurvies were 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 breaking out. People are dying from disease as well. Uh, a, a defector from the Dutch. Uh, um, so there were actually several rounds of defection. Actually, um, the, the the first round of defections were Africans. Um, 
uh, from the Dutch side, and and they they actually became very good snipers because they you know they can handle firearms. And Zheng Chenggong employed these uh, African musketeers in the front line to snipe off Dutch who trying to sneak off the sneak out at night into the out of the fortress. And then the um, and then there was a German defector who who, um, you know, who, you know, but they kind of see the writing on the wall, basically. And he was also got drunk, got disciplined by his superiors. He, he didn't like it. So he went over to Zheng Chenggong's side and he told Zheng Chenggong one weakness of the fortress is this uh, kind of high ground. This is a different um, lookout point just outside the fortress. There was another uh, a Dutch lookout, like a, like a, I don't know what's it called, the, the kind of like a battery holding up there. If he could take that place from there, he could directly fire into the city from the higher ground and the Dutch would have no answer for it. So with that knowledge, you know, Zheng Chenggong took a, like a send of kind of like a elite force to snuck up on this like hill, uh, hilltop just outside of the fortress. They were able to take to route the Dutch garrison there took it over, mounted all their artillery from this hilltop and start firing directly into the city. And after this bombardment, the Dutch surrendered. And 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 um and the Zhen Chenggong was very generous. He allowed the Dutch to depart with all their all their belongings. Uh you know, the two thousand the whatever left, I think at the time the Dutch didn't have two thousand people left. Maybe they had a thousand people or just 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 little near a thousand people left in the fortress and and they were allowed to sail for indonesia uh promising never to come back and and that is the end of the dutch rule in taiwan um do you like to you like to continue or yeah so um so i'm just gonna Go over the rest pretty quickly. Yes. So basically, yes. um, Zheng Chenggong, you know, Ming loyalist, he set up a um kingdom in Taiwan called um Dongning Wanguo, or the Kingdom of Dongning, or um the Kingdom of Eastern Tranquility. Well, that, officially, um, officially though, it's not um, it's still part of Ming because his claim to legitimacy is still that he's a Ming loyalist. So well, I mean, yeah, he was. He was, you know, for his victory against uh, against uh, the Manchu Qin Dynasty, the one of the last Southern Ming emperor conferred to him the imperial name of Zhen, of uh, of uh, Zhu, right? So that's why in in Chinese his name is he's also called the Guoxinye, Emmanuel yeah, yeah. Guoxinye. What what would be in Hokkien or Minnan? Oh, I'm bad with the tones. I'm go. Xing, yeah, something like that. Yeah. I, I'm not. I, I have the tone. I don't know the tones for okay. because you know, with each Chinese character in um Hokkien, there's like two, like at least two readings. Yeah, it depends on like the context. So yes. yeah. So so Guo Xingye, um, literally means uh, imperial imperial name bearing lord, and that yeah. corrupted in you know in Portuguese and Dutch to Koshinga and. That's how he's known to the West, Koshinga. He he became kind of he became basically a great hero in, in China for you know being the first to defeat a, a Western military force. Oh well, not he's not the first, but like a major decisive victory, and and he's built kind. He was kind of like in today's uh, 
in today's world, speaking world, he is kind of remembered as a as a Chinese hero who take back Taiwan from the from the Dutch colonialist. Yeah. And he's still he, celebrated in um, Xiamen. I went to Xiamen and I saw this huge statue of him overlooking the Taiwan Strait. Yes, <laughs> the yes. Taiwan Island. Yes, the the political. It was looking overlooking Jinmen, I think, if I remember yeah. correctly. Yes, and um, in fact, uh, Koshinga himself, Zheng Chengong, he he was not quite down because he, you know, Taiwan didn't turn out to be this land of milk and honey that he was promised. So he was his next step was to conquer the Spanish colony of Manila because Manila was a major trading port and with a lot of high number of Chinese population who could be his potential supporters and. And just when he was about to launch his expedition, he died of. Um, it's not very clear what he died. Either dysentery or malaria. There's a there's a there's another curious um, uh, theory that he died from syphilis, um, because because like he of uh, the according to historical record, you know when the time he died, he he went mad. Uh, you know, he was uh, really hot tempered and like really sh- on a short temper, and, and by all count, he went mad. And and oh, sounds like syphilis. Yeah, like because uh, because at the time, syphilis is uh, again, it's American. It's a it's a disease originated in the New World, and the Spanish and the Portuguese, when they you know when they conquered the New World and brutalized the, 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 the Native Americans, they also contracted the, the syphilis and brought it back to Europe and the old world. And That's revenge for all the diseases they brought to the new world. Yes, yes. Um, you know, except syphilis wasn't as lethal as you know, the smallpox on the, on the Native American population. And, and so you know, there was quite a bit of a contact, as I mentioned before, with the Europeans and there was there were some tantalizing hints that 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 Zheng Chengong might have contact contracted syphilis and, and died from the like its its late stage. But you know he died at a young age, you know just before he was about to launch expedition to conquer Philippines. And after that, his son and his brother were just basically committed to kind of hold on to their holdings on Taiwan, right? Like like you said, this kingdom of Dongning. Uh, even though officially they should still use the Ming Dynasty reign names and, and titles, yeah, but, yeah. but by all intents and purposes, it's kind of an in, independent kingdom. And it's and, not like all intents and purposes, Taiwan isn't really the Republic of China, but they still keep that name. Right, right, and they yeah. they um, and there's strong parallels with today. Yeah. Today's political um, situation, because you know, especially after the Chiang Kai-shek has lost the Chinese Civil War and fled to Taiwan, you know, so 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 in a way, Zheng Chengong is celebrated across both sides of the Taiwan Strait, <laughs> both of the Chinese yes, for different reasons. Yeah, both of Chinese mainland for taking back Taiwan and also celebrated on Taiwan. For you know, basically standing up to like a, a mainland, uh, like a ruling mainland government <laughs> to to establish a separate identity. Uh, not not establish a separate identity, but um, that's that's kind of different because like you have like the um the the Bensheng-ren, the people the people who have been in Taiwan, the Han Chinese people who have been in Taiwan for hundreds of years, they see him as sort of like um. 
one of them is kind of like hey like it's because of him that there's like you know modern taiwan whereas um like with Wai Xingren or the, like the Chinese people, like the mainland Chinese people who went to Taiwan, like after 1945 and especially after the KMT fell, they saw him as like somebody who stood up, who was loyal to the um the so-called rightful Chinese regime, who was um who to the very end of his life worked to restore what restore the rightful you know Chinese. Yes, state. because Min is is supposed to be the rightful. For dynasty to rule over China and the Manchus are invading barbarians, right? And, and I see that. that and and then and, and then after the Chinese Civil War, um, it was like the KMT thought that the Republic of China was their rightful yeah. Chinese government, and that um, the um the communists were just a bunch of bandits yeah. who were um lackeys of Stalin. And 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 just a historical parallel, you know, the the communist army also. Swept to victory from their 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 victory in Manchuria and and Lin Biao's million man army swept up to 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 conquer the rest of China. But anyway, yeah. But then um, I want to um, just tell the audience a note. Just remember the thing about um, Jinmen and Xiamen. Xiamen today is um, admit they're both part of Fujian Province, but Jinmen is still under control of the authorities in Taiwan, and it's intentionally left that way. We'll get that. Into- yes. We'll get into that later because Mao could have easily liberated it, but he didn't. Yes, and we, we, we yeah, we, we'll talk about that in detail. So the, the 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 point is that we right now we have you know on Taiwan this Zen family continues their their rule in kind of this like um, uh, for like two decades. Yeah, yeah, for two decades as in opposition, direct opposition with um, the Beijing based uh, Qing Dynasty. And and at the time, the Qing actually cooperated with Dutch, trying to take Taiwan. <laughs> and and this is you know the politics, politics, right? So so the the Sun Jing his son took over. Long story short, um, he actually decided to carry out the um launch an attack on the mainland to try to take it back, but then um he failed. So then he went back to Taiwan and he died in um, 1681. And then um, there was a little power struggle going on. But then his son, um, Zheng Keshuang, took over. And then um, at this time, the Qing thought it was really opportune because, like I said, there was a power struggle. So then they asked um, Zheng Keshuang to surrender, saying that he could run like his kingdom on Taiwan as a tribu- tributary to the Qing and that the people wouldn't have to um, observe Qing customs, like growing the queues, you know, like, the front of their head shaved with a ponytail on the back. But then um, he said no with different reasons every time. So then eventually um, Emperor Kangxi of um, the Qing Empire wasn't going to put up with this bullshit anymore. So he sent his boys to Taiwan to kick his ass. And and one of his boys was actually used to be a major general under Zheng Zheng Chenggong, Silang. Silang was Zheng Chenggong's major general who, you know, participated in taking Taiwan from the Dutch, but uh, you know, Zheng Chenggong has uh, like a, maybe he was afflicted with syphilis. You know, he he made a lot of uh, decision and his enemies, uh, and he one of them is you know he somehow he suspected Silang of supporting his brother or his uh, his son trying to in a in a coup. So he had Silang's uh, family arrested and, and killed. So so Silang escaped to mainland and. 
defected to the Qing dynasty. And Silan was a big proponent for taking over Taiwan. Um, and, and, and one, you know, motivated by personal revenge against the Zhen family. And, and so when the Silang, you know, led the Qing army, because he's familiar with Taiwan as well. And, and then Silang is also, he's part of the same, you know, the, 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 the Fujian people from this, from the, from that, uh, the same region, you know, the, the, uh, uh, uh the Minan speaking people and he so he finally led he became the admiral of the Qin navy and he took over taiwan and the, at the time there was a big debate in the imperial courts about what to do with taiwan because they're like well taiwan is just kind of this far-flung island like like you know cross the waters is there is there any point to spend imperial treasure to to, to keep it and Silang, you know was very adamant that taiwan should be kept uh, because you know, like that's a place he kind of bled for all his life, and and he wanted Taiwan, and he also um, become one of the largest landowner in Taiwan, and and you know, he, and he also have these his clan connections on Taiwan from the people who originally went over with Zhen Zengong, and it's on uh, it, because his insistence, you know, Qin made Taiwan kind of uh, part of the Fujian province, and this. You know, so the, the, the Chinese migration to Taiwan um, st- started on a massive scale under the Dutch and it continued under Zhen Chengong. And then under Qin, kind of, Silang kind of opened up the floodgate. And, and, and at the time, th- this is also different because um, it was the migration from the mainland to Taiwan was severely limited for the longest time. Well, not for the longest time, but for a while. Yeah. From, for like, Yes, yes. Um, one of the reasons, so, so, and there's also like kind of the, the kind of eth- sub ethnic rivalry started to emerge as well because, you know, the, the, among the people who made it to Taiwan, um, they're from different parts of China. They're, they're, the, um, you know, the, there's, uh, the people from Zhangzhou and there's people from Quanzhou, which two yeah. different cities in Fujian. Uh, there, uh-huh. So there's 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 fighting between clans from Zhang, Zhangzhou and the clans, from... and then nobody liked Hakka. Yes, and then there's Hakkas from from like uh, eastern Guangdong province and they, yeah yeah they also made it because because um because eastern Guangdong and also southern Fujian they were all like power base of Zhen Chengong. So so he kind of drew people from these parts. So 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 people who. Uh, the initial wave of the people to who migrated to Taiwan from mainland are, you know, the people from Zhangzhou, from Quanzhou, and the Hakkas, and and they all fight among each other for the best land in Taiwan, right? After, because after, uh, what happened is after the Zhen Chengong took over from the Dutch, then there's a. You know, kind of the, the dispossession of the indigenous people kind of continued <laughs> because, like, Zhen Chengong's army just kind of just took over all the farms that that were owned by the Dutch and then staffed them with their own army, right? And then, and then, uh, this is an important detail with the um with the indigenous people because the Qing did intervene, yeah, to um varying to varying success, but um, it became the point that until um around the time when um. Taiwan was ceded to Japan. The Chinese Empire only had effective control over about half of the island, whereas with the um the eastern half, which is mostly mountainous, still under the control of 
predominantly by the um, indigenous people. Yes, because what happened first with the Dutch, and then later after uh, under Zheng Tsengong's regime, uh, and later under Qin, is that the Chinese settlers from mainland they come in and they kind of took over the lowland, um, more productive agriculture areas. Um, they start pushing the indigenous people towards the mountains, and the geography. Actually, that's um, that's 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 contested because um. It um because the, there were already Aboriginal people on the on the mountains, and then uh, I think um historians and anthropologists have looked at it, and like yes, there there was some migration by of um Plains Aboriginal people to the mountains, but the thing is, a lot of the people in the Plains just ended up assimilating mm-hmm. into Chinese culture, either through marriage or um there's um under the Qing Dynasty, there's um the the Aboriginal people were were um largely um divided into two camps, which is um. It's kind of bad to say nowadays, but it's just the way they were called. Um, they were called um, they were called savages or fan fanmen, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or um, and then um, there were two like, if you were not um assimilated into Han Chinese culture, you were called um a sheng fan, yeah, which is like um raw a raw savage, yeah. but then like if you were assimilated, then you were called um shou fan, yeah. like a cooked yeah. savage, like. And, um, but then that it's also a, Su also means familiarize or, or, or like a familiarize uh, like Susan right it's like someone you are familiar yeah yeah more yeah. Susan so, so, yeah. yeah but basically that it, it tells you another thing about the Chinese mentality um during the imperial time which is if you were willing to um adopt like you know Chinese culture Confucianism and stuff you will be treated as as a Han well the, like, yeah and and another thing that. Uh, the Chinese settler society in Taiwan kind of mirrors that in Southeast Asia is the the first wave of the migrants to our, uh that left China to these parts are, are primarily male, right? Young men who left yeah. left poor families trying to seek a, a li- living overseas, and, and and often as often times they marry local women, they marry indigenous women, and. Mm-hmm. And they called uh, in, I think in Taiwan they call a Tang San Gong something. Yes, yes. Yo Tang San Gong Wu Tang San Ma. Yes, yes. Which means uh, has Chinese father, but no no Chinese mother, because you know the, the original the first wave of, of migrants they were mostly men, and they took you know indigenous women as wives and. And there's, I mean, but 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 because I think because Taiwan is much closer to to China and there's much larger scale immigration, uh, I mean the the that kind of difference uh, kind of disappear in the later generation. Whereas say like the the stray Chinese in 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 Malacca in you know in Malaysia, Singapore, and and, and Indonesia, that there's a lot more acculturation of blending of culture going on over there because over there there was you know the, the, the numbers are fewer. So they they adopt there's more adopt adaptation of like kind of indigenous culture. But whereas whereas it's the other way around in Taiwan, yeah. at least in the Plains region. Exactly. Exactly. And and so, so like like you said, like uh, I, one thing I always want to talk about is geography of Taiwan. So ta- Taiwan has the central mountains, right, and then you have these lowland, uh, coastal lowland areas, which is like uh, like fertile for for rice agriculture, and and so it, it, through most of the Qing rule, 
you know, the, the, the Chinese settlers from mainland, they mostly settle on the lowland areas. So, so like you say, most of the mountains are still remain in the, in the hands of indigenous people. And the, the, the imperial rule rarely extends to them, which would create a problem when Japan start to, to expand 